It was once upon a time a pretty nice little business hotel, but I think it has fallen on hard times. And um, I don't know the last time the carpet was cleaned in here and the Wi-Fi leaves quite something to be desired. So I'm not really sure how well any of this is going to hold up. But um... Hello, I'm Alan Hill. In this podcast series of The Nostalgic Vagabond, we're talking travel, all kinds of travel, with all kinds of interesting people from all around the world. In conversation, we'll share personal anecdotes, tales of adventure, and maybe misadventure too. Listen in for some unique cultural perspectives, tips from seasoned veterans, and an array of diverse experiences that have contributed to many life-changing journeys. Travel really is a privilege. We know that now. And if we can't do it right this very moment, let's talk about it then. Hey, where are you right now? On this episode of the Nostalgic Vagabond podcast, I catch up with Dr. Martin Goffrilla. I spoke with Martin on the first series of the podcast, during the height of the pandemic last year. His episode titled, Thinking Road Trips, was well received by some of you lovely listeners out there, and I decided to have him on again, this time to talk about his current vocation as an associate professor of archaeology working at a tertiary education institution in China. In conversation, we discuss three interesting places in the world Martin has explored as part of working in the field of archaeology. These three places he ranks chronologically. Beautiful Butrant in Albania, which is opposite the Greek island of Corfu, and the place where Martin dedicated himself to the vocation. Oman in the Middle East, and the Central Asian state of Kazakhstan, which links up nicely with some of the stories Martin shared about his epic road journey with Momo on the previous episode. Martin offers some commentary and gives an insight into life in China and how it has changed over the last decade or two from first-hand accounts from his travel experience. Anyways, let's get to the conversation. All right. Martin Goffrilla, Dr. Martin Goffrilla, where are you right now? Where am I? Yeah, I finally managed to make it out to Shanghai after uh, several failed attempts on the third one. That was the charm. So yeah, I arrived yesterday. Uh, when did I arrive yesterday? Late afternoon, local time, and then it just took ages to go through all the processing at the airport because they've got all sorts of uh, anti-corona COVID uh, measures in place, highly organized, nothing like what we've got in the West in general. But yeah, it took a while, and then they kind of like put you into different queues that send you off to different hotels, and uh, that's where you have to do your quarantine. In my case, um, three days in Shanghai and then another 11 days in um, Shuzhou, where I live and work. Wow. So this is the journey you've embarked on at the moment, a 14-day quarantine period. Well, it's only 14 days hotels, and then it's another 14 days in my own apartment before I'm allowed onto the university campus. So this will be the fourth month of quarantine for me this year. Wow. Well, Martin, thanks for coming on the podcast. It's good to have you back. <laughs> Yeah. The title of this episode is The Three Most Interesting Places My Work Has Taken Me. So I guess the best place to start is for us to get an idea of who is Dr. Martin Goffrilla, what is your vocation, and what exactly does that mean? Yeah. You see, I, I've, been, I've, been, I've been struggling with the ranking somewhat because different places are interesting or fascinating for different reasons. And you know, whether you look at it purely from the professional angle or for, you know, sort of more personal interest or so on, 
different places rank differently. And so I, I find it kind of hard to sort of assign places in that respect. But I think that the, the most logical way to approach it from my current perspective is probably chronologically. Starting off with one of my first sort of foreign um, adventures, expeditions, if you want to call it that, which was Albania back in the early 2000s. So yeah, 2000 is when I first went out there. And that was the first time I went abroad uh, to do archaeology. Even though at the time I was actually studying history of art and um, history of architecture, I was always interested in archaeology. It's something I wanted to learn more about. And so I joined a couple of digs. And one of the first digs that I joined was the one in Albania. At a very interesting time in that country's history as well, because they just come out of a civil war. And it was a pretty, <laughs> it was a pretty dodgy place at that time. Yeah, I don't know. That was a that was a pretty fantastic uh, and very exciting kind of early foray into into the sort of expedition life. As it were. And that would then be later, I guess, followed by Oman, and finally, of course, my current place, Kazakhstan. I would definitely start with Albania. Well, let's let's start with Albania then, Martin. And can you elaborate more on? what the details were and what brought you to that place and what kind of work you were doing in Albania? Mm. I was at the time a student at the University of East Anglia. There was a big school of um, world art, is what it was called, basically history of art, that also contained a pretty good institute of archaeology, the Institute of World Archaeology, as it was called. And they ran digs all over the place. And one of their major digs was the one in Albania. And the guy running it, a pretty famous archaeologist by the name of, of Richard Hodges, was something of a, hmm, shall we say, a bit of an icon or, I don't know, somebody to look up to, you know, someone that everybody thought was pretty cool, pretty neat. It was, you know, a great opportunity to maybe go on a dig that this guy was running. I sent a couple of emails out to some of the people on that dig and they said, sure, we always need extra hands. You've got to pay your own flight, but everything is, you know, board and so on is taken care of. So that was one way to spend a summer, I thought. And I just went out there and spent a couple of months uh, each summer. I did this two years, so in total it must have been about four months, I guess, at a wonderful, amazing um, site, which was basically an old Greek Roman town called Boutrent, right opposite Corfu, the Greek island of Corfu. Mm and located on a sort of an intertidal lagoon which looks like a peninsula with all these amazing old uh, ruins on it with a greek acropolis at the top of it like absolutely fantastic location untouched nature beautiful place and i i kind of fell in love with it i thought it was i this was this was what really got me into archaeology and this was where i kind of took the decision to stick to that as a um as a vocation. Right. So that was a turning point from the studies you were doing prior to the studies you embarked on and that you are still carrying on with today. That's right. I, I started off with history and history of art uh, as a kind of a joint honours. I did those two subjects together. Then during my master's, I did history of architecture. I was already drifting off into the more kind of the more <laughs> structural stuff. And then by my PhD, finally said it's got to be archaeology uh, archaeology has to be it how much more time had passed before you went on to the next place that's interesting to you 
Well, I mean, immediately after my master's, I then actually spent, I went to China. Um, I spent a couple of years out here, basically as an English teacher mm. um, at a university in the in bubble nowhere uh, <laughs> in some backwater <laughs> province that nobody's ever heard of. Right. So that was sort of the intention. I, I thought it was time to, well, initially I had the idea of maybe going to Japan for a while. Uh, that was my first thought. Oh, let's check out Japan. That sounds like far away and interesting and exotic. But then over the course of my planning for this a little, I realized that perhaps China might be the more interesting spot to go at that particular point in time because it's changing so quickly. I always had this feeling that if I go to Japan now or if I go to Japan in 10 years, it's not going to make a huge difference. But in China, it would make a huge difference because this country is in the middle or has been for the last 20 years in the middle of an economic revolution. And I wanted to see that. I wanted to kind of experience that, see what it does with the people, what it does to the sort of a national sentiment. What does it do uh, to the culture, to the material culture as well of a country to be going through such a rapid series of changes in such a, such a short time. That then led me here uh, for the first time around, initially just for one year, but then I stuck around for two. Mm-hmm. And then... I started applying for PhDs. Well, I was actually in the middle of opening a cocktail bar here in Shanghai, but I decided against that. For, um, <laughs> yeah, I thought that maybe that was not the wisest uh, life choice. Mm-hmm, <laughs> and then, mm-hmm. But I already had a place. I had a partner. Everything was set up. And uh, then I got cold feet, right. quite frankly. And I got an offer to do a PhD in, at Exeter with a bursary and everything. So then I thought, no, you know what? better stick to, <laughs> stick to the safe thing. And I went back to the UK and did my PhD. What was the title of your paper? Um, a bit of a mouthful. Diachronic Perspective on the Evolution of Territorial Control on an Islamic Island. Wow. It's, it's fairly standard that they have such long titles too, isn't it? Yeah. The subtitle is a little bit more easy to manage, which is just the castles of Mallorca. <laughs> nice. Yeah. So, but that's basically what it was. And you did that in in the UK. I did that Exeter. Yeah, that's right. Mm. Yeah. Okay. Where did you go next then? So, was it Oman? Did you say the next interesting place was? That's right. Yeah. Then, I mean, you know, as as uh, as I said, uh, my PhD title was uh, the Castles of Mallorca, and that was mostly Islamic archaeology at the Islamic period in Spain and. Uh, how the Arabs and Berbers in Spain used castles to administer and control the territory. And that sort of led me down this Islamic archaeology and tribal archaeology, which is what I've been doing since. In the immediate aftermath of my PhD, I was obviously looking for a job. And I thought the most um, interesting place for me to go at that point would be the Middle East itself, like the point of origin of all the things that I'd be studying during my PhD. I, I found a, a really nice chap uh, uh, who was at uh, Nottingham at the time, Nottingham Trent, mm. <laughs> and he had a research project in Oman. And um, I wrote him an email. I was like, listen, you know, this is what I do. I'd be really keen to maybe join you on one of your projects out there. Initially, I went out to Nottingham just to meet him, but then I stuck around for a month working every day in the office without a flat, without a salary, without nothing. <laughs> I just basically lived in a hostel and worked in the office. Cool. But then I got the job and then um, ended up going out to Oman. And uh, that's what I did for the following, what was that, nearly seven years, actually. 
And so I was based in the UK, but, you know, a few months each year, at least a few months each year, we'd go out to Oman. And it wasn't so much archaeology as it was heritage management. So we were studying old settlements, villages, towns that had been abandoned, quite recently abandoned. This is all in, in the course of, again, economic changes due to the oil boom in Oman. Mm. People leave their ancestral villages and towns up in the mountains or on the edge of the desert, and they move to the big cities on the coast. And so these ancient, really ancient villages, some of them thousands of years old, are just falling apart now. And so our job was to sort of check these places out, study them, document them, photograph them, figure out ways that they could be preserved. If, in some cases, there's nothing you can do anymore. But in many cases, there, there's potential for solutions, be it tourism or agriculture or other, other ways. And that's what we did. And yeah, that's, that was a really interesting job. And Oman is a fantastic country, beautiful country. If you ever get a chance to go there, Alan, you should really give it a go. Yes, yeah, definitely. It seems that there's something in common between your thought processes, what you were saying about what you think about China and what you were just expressing about Oman, as well as the historical side of civilizations and societies. It seems like, Martin, you're quite interested also in the, the, the change and the rate of change and being able to witness this change in society in the examples of China in the last couple of decades and also uh, with the economy of Oman and the movement of people from their traditional villages to the cities and the coastline where I guess the, the economy and the money is. Yeah, yeah, you're right. I don't think that was a particularly conscious decision, at least not when it was early on. Now I am aware of it. And yes, I do follow those. I do follow those. Um, those tendencies and those changes quite consciously. But I think 20 years ago, I wasn't doing that. Not, not with the same degree of intention as I do now. But I was clearly always fascinated by observing how societies, cultures, how civilizations change, evolve. Mm. That nothing is ever static. But that there are periods when that change is accelerated for whatever reason. You know, it can be many things. It can be economic growth as just as much as it can be economic collapse. It can be disease, you know. I mean, I'm sure, for example, right now, our corona situation in the world is going to have profound effects on many aspects of our daily lives yeah. that we are right now not even yet able to really gauge or judge. But from the interpersonal to the international, there will be changes as a result of this, of this crisis that we've been facing for the last year or so in, in, in the West and well, all over the world, of course. And again, it's interesting to come to China now and see how something that we've been struggling with, battling with since earlier this year, here, they've completely forgotten it even exists. Yeah. There's nobody wearing a mask outside. The restaurants are full, the buses are full, the trains are full, the airports are full. And so it's, it's interesting to see that um, China seems to have come out the other end of this thing with much greater success than we have. And I think it's on us to figure out how it's going to affect us and what lessons we can learn from it. Yeah, it's really fascinating. I was talking to another guest on the podcast recently, and she was saying, like you've just expressed, China are a lot further along with mm. dealing with the situation in, a, in its best way possible than lots of western countries are and other countries all over the world and i'm aware also because i'm from australia that australia and new zealand deal with it quite well and also other island states 
are able to deal with this quite well. But I mean, that's because they're island states and, and they're already sort of isolated in a way. China is on a huge continent, yet they still have been able to get their shit together and and get on top of it. Is mm. that something, in your opinion, that perhaps is maybe cultural or yeah. have they been lucky or is it unknown? I don't think it is unknown. And I think that there is one remarkable exception to your island hypothesis, and that is, of course, the United Kingdom. Well, <laughs> which true. Is struggling very bad. But that's connected via a tunnel, isn't it? Um, <laughs> yeah, but I don't think the virus comes in through the tunnel. I think, I don't, I don't think we can blame that. But, um, <laughs> but, uh, but I do get your point. And I think, yes, you're right. There's, there's obviously something interesting going on. How is it that it's not just China? It's also Korea, Taiwan, Japan that are faring remarkably well and, mm. and the Western democracies are not because it's easy to, to point right away at the difference in political system. You know, it's very easy to say, oh, you know, the Chinese are a dictatorship and therefore, of course, they can control a mass of 1.3, 1.4 billion people. And there is definitely an element of truth to that. I'm not going to deny that. Of course, when you see how they manage people here, it is quite extraordinary. But they don't do that in Japan and they don't do that in Korea and they don't do that in Taiwan either. So what's the difference? And I think it really is to some extent cultural. I think that there is a greater trust in authority right. in Asia than there is in the West. I think in, in the West, our governments are simply not trusted, not believed. It is almost fashionable to mistrust your government. Oh, they're all corrupt and incompetent anyway. Why would I do what they tell us? When, let's face it, often, I'm not going to say our, our politicians are all, you know, geniuses. <laughs> they are not. <laughs> but they do have the information. Of course, we also have Donald Trumps and people like that. So what can you do? But um, I'm thinking about, you know, for example, Germany. It's just odd, you know, like Merkel's trying her level best to kind of get the country back on track. And there's 30, 40,000 people running around Berlin saying there is no virus. I mean, mm. what the hell is wrong with people, right? Maybe this is a, maybe this sort of conspiracy theory bullshit is a, a sign of our time. And it's sort of, again, one of these things that I think are, it's a marker for civilizational decline when the government can no longer convince the people of what is right. And it's not always the fault of the government or the state or the authority. Often it's just internal rot to some extent. I think that is these, these conspiracy theories are a sign of that. It's a sign of civilizational decline, even though they regard themselves as the preservers of civilization, but they're the people who burnt down the library of Alexandria. It's exactly the same mindset. Yeah. So you can see from your studies and your research, there's been patterns throughout history within cultures. Absolutely. Yes. I had a, it's early on when this whole disease thing was just starting. Um, there was a group of us, uh, some friends, archaeologists and historians and stuff. And we have a week, uh, WhatsApp group in which we talk about these things a little bit. And it was really interesting early on that we were all agreeing on, um, particularly the archaeologists, that often when there is like an outbreak of a disease, for example, it is not the disease itself that brings down a society or a civilization. It is the people's reaction to it. It is not because so many people die that a society collapses. It is because of the reactions that people have, that governments have, to this potential threat that can bring down the society. So that's not to say that the virus isn't dangerous. 
That's not my point. The virus is dangerous. Of course it is. But how we react to it is often more dangerous than the virus itself or any other disease. Yeah, that's interesting. Very interesting. You've been to Albania. You've been to Oman. In a way, from my understanding, you were proactive in getting to these opportunities. They didn't just land in your lap and they weren't obligations from your work at the university or your employment. You actually went after these opportunities. So was that similar for your time in Kazakhstan? Did you purposefully go out in search of something or were you kind of thrown into a situation with the university or, or asked to go and do some research or was it purely on your own back again? That was kind of serendipitous in some ways. No, it was not requested of me. And it was not, I was, in fact, when the whole Kazakhstan thing started, I was not actually employed anywhere. I had left Liverpool and I was on a road trip, bought myself an old car. That's, in fact, a story to which we can yet come at the end of this segment because I no longer have the car. I sold it recently. But um, I got myself this old Toyota 4Runner, which was sort of set up to be a camper. And I drove along the Silk Road all the way from Liverpool to the edge of China for about seven, eight months. In that, uh, during that trip, I drove through Kazakhstan intentionally. I mean, uh, there were certain things that I wanted to see and that I wanted to visit. I'd also been in touch with a group of archaeologists out there who've got a big, big excavation. And as I was traveling with my little, with my little drone to take aerial photographs, I offered to take pictures of their site, which I then did. And, and, and that was all great. And then together we kind of developed this idea of some other sites in the area that are interesting that should be photographed because nobody's ever been there. And then that developed into my current project, and that's what I've been doing for the last three years. And it's, I guess, from an archaeological point of view, relatively similar to my previous work in Oman. The location isn't that different. It's a form of oasis archaeology, tribal societies, on the interface between settled and nomadic groups. So it is definitely a bit of a continuation from what I was doing in Oman, but obviously a totally different setting. If you want to learn more about Martin's story driving from the UK to China. There's actually a podcast episode in the previous series, Thinking of Road Trips, Listen to These Tips from Martin Goffrilla. And uh, yeah, you do share more details about your journey. So if anyone listening wants to listen to that episode, then you can look it up in the, the catalog. Martin, I'm curious because I do, I mean, I never actually personally met Momo, the vehicle, but I, I feel like I don't know, I'm connected to it already in some way. And you were saying in the other episode that it was being taken care of by a gentleman in Kazakhstan who fell ill with COVID in the summertime, I believe. So yeah, please, I'm curious to know what's, what's happened with your caretaker as well as what's happened with your vehicle. Well, on both counts, the news are not great. I have to admit uh, the caretaker unfortunately um, um, succumbed to the virus. Um, oh young guy yeah that happened in fact very shortly after our conversation in the summer mm. and then over the course of the following months i had to find a way to get the car out of um, this was not in kazakhstan this was in kyrgyzstan i had to get the car out of kyrgyzstan because of this it's complicated but basically many of these central asian countries form part of the russian customs union which are very protective over imports and so because my car was obviously a, a European car, it was only allowed to stay there for a maximum of one year. 
which I would normally see to by just driving out for a day and driving back into the customs union. And then it would be good for another year. Right. But that wasn't possible this year because I couldn't travel out there. So I had to find a transport company to pick the car up and literally bring it back to Europe for me on the back of a truck. And I, I did. I found a company to do that for me. And um, they were the cheapest, by, by far the cheapest I could find for like five grand. <laughs> and um, <laughs> because like I paid 2,000 euros and the next guy wanted something like eight or 9,000. So it was wow. a huge difference. But it, it, I eventually realized that perhaps that wasn't in my best interest because um, they picked the car up, drove it out of Kyrgyzstan, no problem, through Kazakhstan, no problem, into Ukraine, Belarus. They were supposed to take it to Vilnius. And in Belarus, it was impounded by customs. This was in late September. So there was absolutely no way to get the car out. I was trying to get you know, all sorts of documents. And um, they said, no, 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 I need to prove that this car is in fact mine. Otherwise, the truck is not allowed to leave. So the only thing I could then think of doing, and which was also suggested to me by the transport company, was fly out to Minsk and uh, sort it out from there. So then literally, like within 24 hours, I bought myself a ticket, flew out to Belarus. I was told, don't worry, you just have to go to the border where the truck is, with the car inside, show them who you are, show them your passport and the car papers, and that is proof enough, then you can go. Obviously, it wasn't as easy as that. So <laughs> I, I arrive quite late at night in, in thingy in Minsk. Uh, it, was an, it was a hell trip because, first of all, I thought I didn't need a visa for Belarus because European citizens, Germans, don't need a visa. So I fly in, I arrive, and uh, the girl at the immigration desk is like, okay, and when is your return ticket? I'm like, oh, I'm not flying out. I'm driving out with my car, which is here. And she's like, well, then you need a visa. You can only arrive here without a visa if you're flying out again. I'm like, oh, bollocks. Well, what do I do now? I'm sitting at Minsk airport, 12 o'clock at night, and I don't have a visa for this country. <laughs> there was a way around it, oh, but it cost like 180 euros to get a visa. Absolute nightmare. Then I left my credit card in an ATM machine. Then I went to a hotel. <laughs> I realized that my lost my, my, my bank card. Then the next morning, bright and early, I had a lot of cash with me because I intended to pay the truck driver in cash. Mm. And so I took a taxi very early in the morning, seven, six o'clock, something like that, to the border, two hours by taxi. I get there. They have no idea who I am or what I want. <laughs> they don't even want to talk to me. <laughs> they leave me standing there for like three or four hours. Then finally, some guy in a huge hat comes out and tells me he can't help me. I have to talk to the Central Committee of Customs in Minsk. I have to solve my problems there. You know, uh, by this point, because I only had a transit visa, so I was not going to be able to stay for that long. I had to get a new visa now. I had to travel back out to the airport, pay for an extra visa. Then the next morning, I had to go to the Central Committee for Customs. All of this in the middle of a revolutionary country, yeah. you have to remember. Like, there's police everywhere, demonstrations on the streets. It's fucking pandemonium, you know? Yeah. And um, I managed to get a, a meeting at the Central Committee for Customs, who, against all expectations, were super nice, incredibly polite, very helpful. I thought it was going to be one of these post-Soviet institutions where everybody's like really rude and angry all the time but it, it wasn't like that they were actually really cool and uh, and they really helped me out and they said okay no problem you know just let us sort this out for you by this evening we hope to have a letter written for you that uh acts as a kind of a 
laissez-passer, like a, like a document with which you can then release your car, mm -hmm. which I then got. And then I was really happy. By this point, it was like seven, eight o'clock at night. I was sitting at the hotel reception, having a few couple of hours go by. I'm pretty hammered by this point because I was really celebrating. <laughs> I get a phone call from the transport company saying, Martin, you have to come to now because they want to have the truck out of here as quickly as possible. They want to unload your car and get you uh, and, um, and get the truck out. But my car wasn't drivable at this time. Somebody needed to carry it. I couldn't drive it. It was not drivable. It was engine problem. And so um, I was like, I can't, what, you want me to come to the border now? So then I had to take a taxi again, middle of the night, half cut, <laughs> drive to the border, arrive there. <laughs> again, waving my paper around saying, I'm here, I'm here, let me through, everything is okay. And then um, again, they had no idea who I was or what I wanted. They left me standing in the rain for half an hour. Then some really angry uh, soldier comes along, starts shouting at me in Russian. I have no idea what he wanted from me. He starts screaming at me, pointing to the back behind me. There's like a big parking lot with a light in the middle, empty parking lot, huge, the size of a football field. Mm. Go, go, go. Go where? Why? Why do you want me to go? And he's like, ah, 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 starts shouting at me, opens the gate, comes out, said, follow me. I follow him to the middle of this parking lot where the light is. And he said, stay. <laughs> I'm standing there in the rain in the middle of this parking lot at one o'clock in the morning, not knowing why, you know, in the, in, in the middle of no man's land. Wow. <laughs> you know, you have no idea what's going on. I'm standing there for another 40 minutes or something. And then another soldier comes along and he's really nice and kind and really polite and smiley. He's like, your car is ready now, sir. You can come. So very Kafkaesque. But um in the end, I got into the back of the truck and it still took another seven hours to get across the border to, to Lithuania mm. and then unloaded the car in, in, yeah, in Vilnius and then fixed it up a little. Uh, I just needed a new belt uh, for one of the uh, new fan belt. Yeah. And then I drove down to Warsaw to pick up my friend Alex there. And then from Alex, from Warsaw, the next day we drove to Dresden and there the turbo blew up and the car was wrecked. <laughs> End of story. It's in Germany where it is laid to rest. Is that right? I sold it. I managed to actually sell it for a pretty decent price. Even with a broken turbo? Even with a broken turbo on Spanish plates. Yeah. <laughs> um... <laughs> if anyone wants to listen to the, the epic journey that Martin took from the UK into China in the infamous Momo Toyota 4Runner, listen to the previous podcast. Yeah, you can get more information on what's possible with driving a 4x4 across multiple countries. And in that story too, Martin shares some other dealings with crossing borders. Yeah, crossing borders is a pain. Always, always. <laughs> Never cross the border if you don't have to, seriously. <laughs> <laughs> oh, wow. So, I mean, in a way, it's kind of a happy ending. I mean, the car is no longer yours, but the car lives on and... You've you've got some money for it in the end as well. So, do you want to answer that phone? <laughs> oh. Room service. Hello. <laughs> I'm very well, thank you. How are you? <laughs> Fuck, that was weird. Hello, I'm a doctor. How are you today? I'm very well, thank you. Okay, bye. <laughs> that was it. Yeah. <laughs> you could also say I'm a doctor as well. How are you? <laughs> yes, I should have said that. <laughs> <laughs> that would have been great. <laughs>
this is these are the weirdnesses that happen in China. I'm like, I'm in this room. I can't go outside. Every now and again, somebody drops a bag of cold food outside of my door. <laughs> then occasionally there's a knock. I open and somebody sticks a thermometer in my face, measures my temperature, and runs off again. No hello, no thanks, no goodbye, no nothing. <laughs> it's oh wow, it's pretty peculiar. <laughs> it must be almost like a prison with a few comforts of home. I mean, it is effectively a prison in the sense that I can't go outside. I can't leave my room. If I were to leave my room, I couldn't get back in because I don't actually have a key for it. <laughs> yeah. There's no room service or anything like that. I can't order food or the food is delivered at specific times of the day. Cold. <laughs> yeah. Not very good. And um, yeah, it's only been a day. I've still got two weeks to go. Did you, obviously you, you came into this knowing this will be the situation you'll have to quarantine. So did you mm -hmm. prepare or think of any strategies that you will use to occupy your time, but also keep your sanity? I imagine you'll have work to crack on with, but have you got any specific things other than that? I mean, I have, yeah, I do have work. I've got classes. So I'm, I'm still teaching, you know, I'm, that, that hasn't changed. Other than that, honestly, I think it's mostly Netflix and uh, just you know, YouTube. I don't really have much else to entertain myself with. I mean, I've obviously got my e-reader and uh, mm. that's good, but it's not like I, I can't go for a walk and I can't sort of, uh, you know, I do star jumps for like half an hour a day yeah. <laughs> and try and again keep in shape a little bit. That's pretty much it, you know. Uh, but this is, you see, this is what I've been doing already for a month previously, because this is, this, as I mentioned earlier, was my third attempt at flying out to China. So I've been quarantining two weeks prior to each flight because I need to have this health test. Otherwise, I'm not allowed to come into the country if that's not green. If I've contracted corona anywhere, then I can't fly anyway. Right. So I'm always, so it's been, it's been literally like five weeks now that I've been quarantining in various places. Which places have you been quarantining in? Did you get back to Mallorca or was it in, for example, Poland or, or uh, Germany where you've been doing your quarantining before? That's right. So I, I was the last, the last five weeks I've been in Germany. So that's where I've, okay. I've just been sitting at home and um, it was easier there because you can still go outside, you can do some exercise. It's, you know, Germany isn't like China. It's not the same thing. Yeah. The quarantining that I was doing, I was doing of my own accord, not because somebody was enforcing it on me or anything like that. So it's, uh, yeah. it was more of a personal choice. So going back to your three interesting places, mm -hmm. we've got Albania, where it all began for you with your current direction, and Oman, where you spent quite a lot of time developing your speciality, I suppose, in the types of research and investigations you carry out. And then I guess with Kazakhstan and that Stan region, you were able to incorporate your epic road journey with your passion and your, your work, your interest in the types of civilizations you're interested in. Yeah. Have you got any other ideas for later of other places that you might want to explore once you finish your current projects and where are they and what, what reasons draw you to these places? Yeah. I mean, somehow I've always managed to end up doing what I want to do. You know, I've always let myself be guided by that. I've somehow always felt that that was the best way to do a good job is if you actually like what you're doing. And so mm. kind of trying to turn my interests into my job. 
I can see myself actually return to parts of my PhD research, which I'm actually in the process of publishing right now. And it's quite nice after 10 years to sort of look back on those things that you did back then and see how maybe some of your ideas have changed and some of the methods as well and how the field as a whole has changed because in 10 years, a lot of, a lot of things happen. So that, that's quite nice actually. And of course I would eventually like to move back to Europe and live there. Mm. I've been away for a while now. So I think it would be nice to do that. And if I managed to combine that with some professional aspiration, that would be of course the better. And Spain, Spanish, uh, Islamic archaeology, yes. I'm still very much into that. North Africa as well, though I don't know it that well. I mean, I've been to Morocco many times, but I don't know Algeria, I don't know Tunisia. So those are places I would definitely like to see and uh, get to know a little, yeah. Have you done quite a lot of research on the Ottomans? None, zero. Yeah. It doesn't really quite fall into my period. It's a bit too late for me. I sort of cut off around 1300 is sort of my cutoff point. And that's, that's late. Um, that's being generous. Yeah. But uh, yeah, the Ottomans are a little bit too late. Not that I don't find it interesting. I mean, I do very much so. But it's, it's an entire world. So from the 15th century onwards, it's an entire sort of world history that I'm just less familiar with than the earlier stuff. So currently, Martin, you're at the University of Mining and Technology in China. Yeah. It's got a few campuses, right? Yeah, I mean, it was, it's a complicated history. China University of Mining and Technology actually originated in Chengdu in, in Sichuan province, like in the late 1800s, I think. Um, it was sort of the first technological university in China. And then over the course of the Mao period, particularly the Cultural Revolution and the Great Leap Forward, for strategic reasons, they moved many of these institutions around. They literally picked up the entire faculty and moved them somewhere else. And so they were initially moved to Beijing in the 60s or 70s, I'm not really sure now, and then were established in Beijing. And then they were partially moved out to a smaller provincial town, Shuzhou, which is where it is now. That was, as I said, for strategic reasons. Many of these key universities were moved out of major centers of population for fear of nuclear attacks and things like that. So while the university retained Mutol in Beijing initially, that became weaker and weaker and weaker. And now there's only PhD students in Beijing, but the growth of the university is out in, in, in Shuzhou where I am. Hmm. So it's, um, that Shuzhou is definitely is, is, is the, the main campus. Um, in Beijing, they just have a couple of buildings. Hmm. I'm very curious about how you have potentially seen China evolve from the very first time you went there hmm. to the modern day i mean you were there pre-covid and you've gone back or you've tried to go back a few times but i guess even now you're locked in a hotel room so you you haven't really experienced china at the end of 2020 per se but from perhaps 2019 compared to the very first time you arrived in china and were working there and and um living there mm. what are the biggest changes in your opinion culturally and and through your experience yeah, the first time I came out here was 2005, 2005 to 2007, and then again now, 2000, late 2017 until now. But of course, you're right, 2000, uh, 2020, I haven't been here almost at all because I, I, <laughs> yeah, I came back to Europe in January and I spent the rest of the year in Europe. Yeah. But yeah, the question is obviously a pertinent one, and it's one that many people talk about. I mean, I'm, you know, this is one of the great subjects of today's world is China's extraordinary change in this very short period. 
how does a country lift you know 800 million people out of poverty in half a, in basically a generation mm. it's quite extraordinary and it's really a sight to behold chinese optimism knows no bounds they feel their time has come it's um this is the new chinese century and you know the west either hang on or let go but um there's nothing else left for us to do and so the chinese are definitely they see themselves in the driver's seat of the planet no question about that but they take a very very different approach to it than perhaps a western power might like the united states for example or so on yeah confidence i think is the main word to explain it or to to describe it i think yes confidence and uh, absolutely boundless confidence confidence in themselves confidence in their state in in the to an extent i think also in the governments though that's always a bit of a it's a difficult subject to broach with people because people don't hear talk about politics mm. it's very difficult to have a a calm and um analytical conversation about politics with with people here it's uh, very difficult to do it's also not really in the culture to talk about it like in the west we talk about politics all the time it is what we do we talk about politics over lunch and with our colleagues and in the newspapers and in the media and it's everywhere and um the chinese don't as far as the chinese are concerned politics is the business the domain of politicians um, there's nothing that i could possibly contribute to something i know nothing about that is their idea that their, their attitude towards it they regard their government a little bit like i don't know if you work for microsoft at some low level position how you might regard your board you know yeah you can't really do anything about it you know they are there you know they're doing a job and you suspect or you hope that they're doing a good job but you've got no control over it and your opinion doesn't matter and that's more or less what the chinese attitude to politics is the country is being run like a corporation that much more so than the first time i came out here in the early 2000s china was much more free much more open than it is now that has changed definitely and not even visibly it's not like there's more police around or something like that that's not how it works i think it's a little bit more inside the heads of people yeah people are just much more on the one hand i have perhaps more guarded and more careful but on the other hand also more content and more happy with their lot like they might not agree with everything the government does but it seems to work so why rock the boat hmm when you say more open when you first arrived what do you mean precisely mm um more open to foreign ideas and um sort of um foreign ways of thinking there was much more curiosity about what's going on in the rest of the world than there is now mm. that definitely i mean there is still the sort of the tourism curiosity but chinese tourists chinese people go on tourism primarily to show others where they've been rather than for experiencing something for themselves it's all about airing of selfies on 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 social media it's not so much about going to another place and really learning something or immersing yourself into that culture or no absolutely not they wouldn't even know where to start they just want to go abroad to be able to say that they've been abroad take a couple of nice selfies bring back a bunch of funny souvenirs and that's it and then you've been to rome you've been to paris you've been to venice yeah. whatever that's basically what it is it's more of a social exercise than a one of personal you know edification interesting that's that's fascinating so you said a lack of curiosity is the current climate yeah that's right i think that that's one of the main thing to take away from 
from the changes and I mean there's obviously many things like the rising materialism which is absolutely rampant mm. people's values are, are changing of course family structures social structures changing not so much because of the economic changes but partially also because of things like the one child policy that they it doesn't exist anymore of course but it did mm. for a long time that skewed demographics heavily in favor of, of males rather than females that's why China has a huge population, of, a much larger population of men than of women, things like that. All of those things are noticeable to some extent in society. And those are things that are fairly recent. You know, these are things that are not, this isn't ancient history. These are things that have happened over the last 20, 25 years yeah. or less. That's, that's fascinating. Now that you're working at the university in China and you've had the opportunity to work at other universities and to study at other universities as well, would you say your job title is professor? Yeah, well, associate professor, yes. As, as an associate professor in an academic institution, mm. what would you say are some of the perks of that job and, and some things that you enjoy about having this vocation? Um, I don't really place that much value on the title itself. I don't think that makes a huge difference. Um, might my salary isn't significantly higher than that of anybody else I work with. Um, it doesn't make a huge difference. Sure, there are some minor perks to being a foreign, foreign professor at a, at, a, at a Chinese institution in the sense that you are possibly regarded with a slightly higher degree of prestige, if that's the right word to use for this, but not, not inordinately so. I mean, I, I don't think it's a huge deal. One thing I do notice here which has nothing to do with my personal role or my title, but just with working at a Chinese university, is that it is things can get done much more quickly and much more easily than, for example, at a British university. British universities now, you have the feeling that the HR departments, the bureaucracy, have become the front end of the university. And the teaching, the research, the professors and the students are totally the back end. They have really no control over anything anymore. The academics at British universities have nothing to say. Everything is run by HR departments. And that obviously makes everything impossible because you can't get anything done if the people who make choices and decisions over your research and your teaching are people who don't do research or teaching, you know? <laughs> it's, uh, it's terrible, it's really bad. And even, I mean, this is applicable across the board in British universities, they all lack money. And you wonder how is that possible with the huge amounts of cash they take in from all their overseas students who pay ridiculous amounts and fees. And it's because it's all gobbled up by these HR departments who have to be staffed and manned and paid. It's like this old, there's this old saying, the bureaucracy is expanding to meet the needs of the expanding bureaucracy. <laughs> And that is the syndrome from which the British universities suffer, you know, yeah. and it's noticeable. I mean, it's bad. It's really bad. And you notice it the more when you change and you go to another country and you see how it can also be done, that it doesn't have to be that way. And in the UK, everything is health and safety regulations and, um, and ethics committees, total bullshit that just wastes people's time and keeps them from actually doing their jobs. Yeah. It sounds like it was a bit of a hassle to progress in a forward direction. So you're currently in China. Are you on a, a contract there and, and for how long? Uh, that's a fantastic question. My contract <laughs> that I've been on, 
it's a bit of a sore point even. Uh, the contract I've been on for the last three years is now running out for, well, literally next month. Hmm. I'm due to be given a new contract, but I haven't seen that yet. And I have no idea what they're going to put in front of me and effectively force me to sign because I'm already here. And if I don't sign it, there's not much else I can do. I can just get on the next plane back home. <laughs> so I'm not sure what... I'm exaggerating. I'm pretty sure it's going to be it's going to be okay. And so far, they've been really fair with me, and they've been really really good. And, and you know, I'm nothing to complain about. But it is just a bit of an odd situation. That sort of you know, it's either take it or leave it sort of thing. <laughs> so, Martin, I, I imagine you plan to continue on your current project you're working on now, continue teaching in China. But then, when you sort of wrap up this current project, will you be open to then perhaps moving back to a European institution? Yeah, of course. I mean, this current project is really just getting started now. So I've done the last three years, I've really only done the preliminary groundwork. I've done all the documentation of the sites. I've done the photographing and the sort of describing and, and early hypotheses that I've developed. But now it's about getting some serious bucks in and really doing the, the real work, the core sampling, excavations, uh, carbon-14 analyses, ancient DNA analyses, environmental, hydrological analyses, all that stuff. And that's going to take time and money. Mm. That's not something that I can do by myself. That's something that I've, I've got a whole team of people that we were doing this together. Um, it's not just, not just me. Yeah. So you think another three or four years again from now to round up the project? I haven't really settled on a specific timeline as regards my being in China. I could see myself being here for another year or two, maybe even three if things go really well. But you know, if I get a great offer somewhere else, I'm flexible, you know, I'm happy to, you know, you have to be flexible in this business. Mm. If somebody makes a great offer, then you have to consider it at least. For the time being, I'm happy here. And it's uh, so far, it's been treating me very well. And um, yeah, I have no complaints. If you were talking to people who are in their early 20s or mid 20s, mm. perhaps they're, they're in the middle of a master's program, um, they're very intelligent. They perhaps are considering doing a PhD and then heading into an academic line of work. What kind of advice might you give to them about the possibilities of, of this type of vocation? I would, I mean, it depends on if you want to stay in, a, in an academic career or if you want to then actually, you know, it kind of depends on whether you're doing humanities or sciences. Because with a PhD in the sciences or, you know, even engineering or something like that, of course you can go in the industry and you can get a great job and make huge amounts of money. Something which in the academic environment, you're never gonna do, right? <laughs> I mean, academics, you, you don't become an academic for the money, especially an archeologist. Archeologists with money are always suspect. <laughs> <laughs> nice. You must have been doing something very bad. <laughs> so there's that. But um, on a more intellectual, personal level, I think the, the thing you have to, if you, if you apply for a PhD, you have to be sure that you are going to enjoy this subject for the next three to four years or longer, depending on the country where you do it. It's not something, you know, you're going to be spending your head down a hole for four years. It better be a nice hole, you know? <laughs> <clears throat> so there's that. That's amazing. At the same time, I still think that for me, I really enjoyed doing my PhD. I've never enjoyed as much academic freedom as I did then because nobody could tell me what to do. Nobody could tell me, oh, you, you know, you have to do this or you have to do that. No, I do whatever I want to do. 
Of course, I have a supervisor who gives me advice and who reads my stuff and says, Martin, this is crap, write that again. But um, <laughs> other than that, you are very much free to follow your own ideas and your own conclusions and um, build your own arguments. And for a certain kind of person, that can be incredibly liberating. And for me, yeah, that is. I enjoy that. That's the kind of freedom I enjoy. <laughs> my favorite four. Are you ready? Yeah. Dr. Martin Goffula, what is your favorite continent? Europe. Your favorite language? To speak, to write, or to, to read. Can you give me all? Yeah, to read German, to speak English, to write Spanish. Dr. Martin Goffrilla is trilingual. <laughs> <laughs> what is your favorite site or location, sort of specifically? So Samar Valley in Kyrgyzstan. And this one might be a little bit more challenging, or maybe not. What is your favorite song? Isis by Bob Dylan. Oh, it wasn't hard at all. <laughs> no. <laughs> My favorite four. So the last question I have for you, Martin, is um, in your opinion, when traveling, what is the biggest difference between traveling for work or traveling for play? Independence. When traveling for work, you're effectively uh, forced to remain in the location that you are at for however long it takes you to do the work. Obviously, for traveling for pleasure, you're much more flexible. I mean, you know, even when you travel for pleasure, when, you, when your work is your pleasure, you're still tied to a place, which when you're traveling exclusively for pleasure, you're not. Mm. You can, you know, hitch a ride, get in a train, a bus, a car, whatever, and go somewhere else, um, which is something when you're working, you can't. That independence is for me the main difference. Awesome. Well, Dr. Martin Goffrilla, thanks for coming on. Really appreciate your insights and having a nice conversation, even with a slight lag from the UK to China, but we managed. Alan, thank you very much for having me. It's been a pleasure talking to you um, once again. And uh, yeah, it's always good. You've always got great questions and uh, questions that make me think as well. See, this is the fun part is when you, when you really have to sort of, uh, okay, wait a second. Hmm, that's a good point. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, great. I love it, man. Great. And uh, wish you all the best. Uh, I hope you've got, uh, you got, must have some really interesting people on at the time. Yeah, yeah. We've got a whole list coming up in the future. So 2021. Yeah. Here we go. Fantastic. Stay safe in your hotel room. I hope the cold food doesn't get too monotonous for you. And uh <laughs> I've been warming it up and I've been warming up the food in the kitchen sink, in the bathroom sink with hot water. <laughs> oh, well, I'm sure you've been through enough experiences in this life to manage this one in your stride. Will do. Thanks for listening to The Nostalgic Vagabond. I hope you enjoyed listening to our conversation. And if you would like to listen to other interesting talks on travel, there are more podcasts available. Check them out wherever you get your podcasts. And for updates, just follow me at the Nostalgic V. Don't forget, your journey is special. Own it. I've been Alan Hill. Until next time.
Hey guys, if you enjoy listening to The Nostalgic Vagabond, why not support the podcast? If you haven't already, subscribe, and you'll be notified when new apps drop. You can also support the podcast by leaving a rating or a review on your podcast app. Why not share this episode? Tell your friends about it if something resonated with you. Word of mouth is great promotion. If you're into social media, maybe post a screenshot of the episode or upload the link on your profile so your mates can see what interesting content you've been into lately. All your support comes straight back and helps to keep the travel content and nostalgia of this podcast going. Cheers. So don't forget to subscribe.